Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis, to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guess lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, so I got to set the stage for today. Have you ever been in a room full of phenomenal leaders when all of a sudden in walks a woman with such beautiful presence and light 
that everyone actually freezes and all attention is turned on that one person. Well, y'all, honestly, that's our guest today. And I am simply in awe of her. I first met Suchetta several years ago at a CSAP convention, Council for State Association Presidents. And trust me when I say that the room fell silent and was filled with her infectious laughter immediately thereafter. Not the COVID cooties, but just that joyful laughter. Suchetta is as brilliant as she is beautiful. And our field is better because she is in it, because she shares her her passion, her vision, and executes it all with just phenomenal leadership skills. So a little bit about her. Suchetta Kamath is an award-winning speech-language pathologist, a TEDx speaker, a tech entrepreneur who has created EXQ, a cloud-based digital curriculum for middle and high school students designed to directly personalize and build executive functional skills through games, air analysis, and metacognitive lessons. She's a host of the podcast, Full Prefrontal, Exposing the Mysteries of Executive Function, where her invited guests range from neuroscientists, researchers, educators, learning specialists, journalists, and leaders. Finally, Suchetta serves on many boards and is deeply committed to volunteerism. The past three years, she founded and currently runs, along with her Gasha colleagues, Gasha Gives, that's Georgia Speech Hearing Association, y'all. And Gasha Gives is a free communication and executive function job readiness training program for previously homeless, incarcerated, and disenfranchised men in inner city Atlanta. And y'all, she is here today to talk all things executive function, which my ADD, ADHD self is like super ecstatic for because, you know, I'm kind of hoping on getting some pointers. So huzzah, Suchata, yay. Hi, lady. Hi, how are you? First of all, thank you for having me. And what a kind and thoughtful and, and generous introduction. I really appreciate it. And the feeling is mutual, as you know, my friend. I love you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God, I love you. you uh, every time I see you, it's, it's just, you bring my heart joy. And you always have a great idea. Like, we run into each other at, like, ASHA or CSAP once a year. And then we're like, and then we bolt. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> we need to find more time. I agree. Yes, 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 yes. And you am, and I have to say, you've mentored some of my dear students, and I am forever indebted to that. So thank you for always being there when you know somebody needs a, a quick answer question. So thank you, thank you. <laughs> okay, so I am a weird subset of speech pathologists, and the fact that my focus is pediatric feeding and swallowing, but I have to be honest, the thing that it is that you do, executive functioning, I did not really truthfully realize was in our scope of practice until you and I got to talking several years ago. So how did you, how did you get into executive function? Why is it relevant to our field? And, and fill this all in, because this is very interesting. Great question. First of all, I think I, I honor and respect every single speech-language pathologist because our scope of practice is vast and mm -hmm. often underestimated by the phrasing of speech-language pathologist. And people yes. are often confused because it hyper-focuses on pathology and, and speech and leaving all the other aspects of human communication. And the second part to our field is also medical which I kind of, again, hate this 
two buckets because that's too concrete from where I sit uh, in the domain of executive function is a medical-based speech-language pathology practice and then school-based or education-based. So none of that makes sense. But I, I was a, a bo- I'm born and raised in India. I had my training in India and we were trained to be generalist, which was a gift. And but generalist means you are exposed to many anomalies in the field. And one of the things it does is more than answering questions, raises many questions. <laughs> and just inst- it instilled a deep a desire in me to seek, search and investigate and learn more. So my practice was in medical speech language pathology, uh, focusing on brain disorders or neuro- neurogenic communication disorders, as we call them. And uh, started with concussions, traumatic brain injury, multiple sclerosis, aneurysms, AVMs, seizure disorders, name it, and I had the exposure. One striking thing, though, that was so evident is no two patients were alike. And this is very confusing because when you talk about diabetes, you know these are the things you look for, and then there's a general management principle and then individual variation. Well, when the brain is affected, there's a lot more in individual variation first and then some general management principles. So as we were also the second part of my training, I have a master's in linguistics. So I was very interested in aphasia, you know, Wernicke's and Broca's and, and just communication disorders related to speech production, comprehension, processing. But as I started working with the brain injuries, one of the things that became evident is you can have something called right hemisphere dysfunction. I don't know if you remember that that term. <laughs> Before we called it executive function, it was right hemisphere dysfunction, which is basically saying, you know, disorganized speech or disorganized discourse, inability to manage goals, but we never called them. And it had to be related to language. So, so all I'm saying is one of the things that we didn't get right um, or our field as it's evolving, that we, we are operating in concrete buckets, language, you know, speech production, cognition. Where I interacted and operated was the interplay between many aspects of the, the complex um, mechanism of brain functioning and interactions with psychology, interaction with education and learning, and interaction with social anthropology, social psychology. And so... That's how I landed in executive function before it was called executive function. And um, then a lot of adults that I started working with needed job reentry training program. And one of the most critical, this is I'm talking about 90s, we call them soft skills, which is another term we have underestimated and misunderstood. But if you look at the skills that are, you know, that entail soft skills, they are not simply communication. They are also self-management. So that's kind of the genesis of my my work in this field and my understanding of teaching and training and developing executive function. Okay, how did you start working with social anthropology and social psychology? Are those professions readily available within Atlanta? Because you live in Atlanta, right? Yes, yes, I do. And uh, no, I. it's not. Uh, so what happened is in... Um, 90s, late 90s, early 2000, when I, I, I lived in Boston, and uh, we, I had a wonderful opportunity to hear Antonio Damasio, who is a neuroscientist who studies consciousness. 
And then Oliver Sacks, I don't know if you're familiar with Oliver Sacks <gasps> and his writing. So I had a chance to attend Wait, his lecture. Wait, you got to hear him? Yes. What? Uh, and he had published Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. So uh, there were some opportunities I had which really had a transformative impact on my own relationship to my field. And the third person who I was honored to have him as a guest was Franz Duval, who is a primatologist. And I'm working with Robert Sapolsky, who's another neurobiologist. But I was, I'm a polymath, you can say, and I was interested in the diversity of topics and out of personal interest. Also, if you look at co- the field of cognitive retraining, where most of my training principles come from, there's always this neuropsychology aspect. And there is this interplay between how do you help people to think about their thinking and how do you help people learn new skills and those particular areas of our teaching and learning are not part of our used to not be part of our curriculum so i had to supplement that uh, on my own and i'm a lifelong learner and so i started attending conferences and and uh, presenting and collaborating and that's how i kind of developed I and mean, it's so funny my podcast is only uh, 4 years old 3 3 and a half 4 years old but i i was able to get guests that i have watched and interacted with for the last 15 years <laughs> so they easily said yes sure <laughs> so that's the story i guess oh my gosh this is this is folks this is why we engage in interprofessional education because we have to learn about the specialists that our patients will collaborate with and Yes, but you, that's amazing. You got to hear Oliver Sacks, our clinic program. I had the students this semester. I was picked between two books. One was um, The Man Who Mistook His Wife or His Hat. The other was The Ad of St. Child. That way, you know, you pick, pick your own, choose your own adventure. And then talk about new terms they learned and how that will evolve their therapeutic presence. And the ones who chose The Man Who Mistook the Wife or His Hat, the, the feedback on the book was just amazing. But... Oh, I love that book, folks. If you haven't read it yet, go invest in Amazon. Yes. Okay. So with respect to executive function, I I have to say that I don't work in this world, but my thought process is their ability. When I think of executive function, my takeaway is it's my ability and how to um, sequence my day's events so that I don't triple book myself and or I have to stay focused and present in the moment because I, I do have ADD and ADHD. And sometimes that's hard to stay in the moment because I get excited and then chase after a squirrel. <laughs> But I feel like there's a whole lot more to it than that. So how does this evolve? Help any guidance? (laughs) Such a great question. And maybe I should set the stage by defining executive function, which I I think you asked me earlier, but I didn't define. So let me start with that. (laughs) So, and and it's quite confusing. I, I think if you haven't had training in cognition, I think it's really hard. It took me a long time to grasp the top down, bottom up, you know, there are 32 definitions in the field. There is an agreement, disagreement phenomenon going on. But I think there's general settled view that executive function refer uh, to the higher order cognitive control process for attainment of a specific goal. So I'll simplify that, which means it involves a set of skills essential to appropriately adjust one's thoughts, emotions, and actions 
but in accordance with changing environment and challenging times so that the personal goals can be achieved. But the caveat there is the goals must be set by self for self and not in a selfish way, <laughs> more enlightened way. So sorry, let me kind of break this definition down into further parts because it's very complex way of thinking about executive function. And, and it's very unfortunate that we typically think executive function as organize, organization planning, sequencing, or, or taking care of business or managing goals. But to me, that's like the, you know, seven blind men and the elephant story. I don't know if you know that story, which I grew up uh, on that story. So there was a king who had eight men and blindfolded them and brought them to the kingdom to show this to his kingdom. But And he put an elephant in the middle and asked each blinded man, what is an elephant? And so one says, oh, elephant is a, like a pillar because he was touching the leg of the elephant. You know, one said, oh, elephant is like a snake. You know, he was touching the tail and so on and so forth. So I think sometimes if you don't have the perspective, the big picture perspective, you might end up defining executive function in a very narrow way. And that can also limit the way you intervene or support and help develop. So it's really critical that your foundational understanding and definition needs to be solid. So, so let's talk about so set of skills. So these are set of skills and these set of skills are cognitive set of skills. These are affective set of skills. So first of all, executive function is collection of set of skills. It's not a thing. It's a collection of set of skills. So you use these skills, appropriately adjust one's thoughts, emotions, so that you can produce action. So if you can think about it, your thoughts are invisible. Your emotions are semi-visible. <laughs> but if you have a stiff upper lip, as Britishers say, you may not show them, but actions are visible. So executive function is the primary a way you translate your knowledge into results. So it's not what you know, it's you, what you do with what you know is executive function. So for example, I live, um, I've been in this building for 15 years and I cannot tell you every month, at least one email comes from the building managers uh, saying that so-and-so has parked their car illegally <laughs> or in a handicapped spot without having the handicap sign. That is executive function failure. Now, this could be intentional, right? So this not stupidity. It's actually malice. That means I just am running late and this is a ooh, juicy parking spot. I'm going to take it. That's failure of executive function. The second way to think about it, we get parking, I mean, images of somebody parking their car on the white line. So two spots are taken instead of one. So, of course, you can see my, my building is very busy. But so we get an email saying that, come on, people, you're, pro, you know, and, and they public shame you. So they send the email of, with the picture of the car. But what it says is that, you know, you should use the spot, parking spot correctly. You know, you shouldn't park in the handicapped spot when you shouldn't. But are you doing what you know? So in that way, executive function is actually backbone of moral behavior. Executive function is backbone of contentment, compassion, empathy, because all those perspectives, all those ways of being or acting or, or emoting or speaking are reliant on knowing what to do and doing what you know what, you do, what to do. So that's one component of executive function. But the second piece that I was talking about is, is this ability to adapt 
appropriately, which is to adjust your thoughts, emotions, and actions in accordance with changing environment and challenging times. So this is really the second piece, and that's why it's so critical, so critical for our practice, because what is what are we teaching? One of the most amazing things that, and I used to supervise a lot of kids, which I don't anymore. Um, recently, I haven't. I mentor a lot of people, but I don't supervise students in university. But one of the things you will see that is the same distinction between a novice and an expert. So novice needs a lot of rules to follow, and they are very rigid about their rules, right? And you, you have a little bit of 80 kids, and so you know this process that you they do what you ask, they don't apply the elbow room, or they will argue with you if you break the rule that you have for them. And then an expert knows what the wiggle room should be or is. So executive function are mostly evident in crisis, in uh, hard times, during uncertainty, in circumstances of ambiguity, during roadblocks, and even during change or loss. So if you think about current climate, everything I'm talking about is relying or requiring us to activate our executive function. So executive function allows you to adapt or pivot or think on your feet to come up with alternatives that work for you to achieve the goals you have created for yourselves and so that you can move forward. So if your mom comes up with a rule for you to hang your PJs before you um, you know, change into school clothes and you don't hang the clothes, mom is going to ride your tail. That means mom's executive function skills went into it. So it's really important that when we teach, and you know, you know, I know you do a lot of peat swallowing, right? So, And one of the things that is really critical from executive function lens is when you hand the baton from you as a clinician to parents as the mentors of that program, feeding program, your executive function need to be dialed down and their executive function skills need to be dialed up. And and I think sometimes clinicians, uh, particularly helper professions, we are so used to helping that we forget to stop helping. And so if you want executive function to really emerge, you have to stop helping and switch to cueing to know that help is needed. Yes, yes. No, this is why we engage in parent coaching instead of utilizing the direct service delivery model. If we go in and we do the therapy that one hour a week and we deliver the services and then we walk out the door, then the rest of the 120 or 167 hours a week, the family does not have the basic skills in order to carry that over. So that's part of the backbone behind why we are supposed to utilize parent coaching within early intervention, within home-based services, within the world of PFD, pediatric feeding disorders, because you just hit the nail on the head. 100%. Absolutely. Also, I had so many funny thoughts were running through my head when you were talking about like the parking analogy, because I somehow managed to parallel park between two of those um, cement bumpers and get my front right tire stuck between them. No idea how I did it. And it was a, um, it was, it was definitely interesting. I had to get the boys barber to help me move my car because I could not get it out. And I was like, and my eight year old was like, how did you do this? I was like, I don't actually know. So I'm not sure where in the executive functioning that fell. 
that broke down, but I'm going with visual spatial cues because that's not a strong suit. But, um, no, and, and that's yeah, such a good so- point because a very important executive function skill set is uh, prediction mm-hmm. and, and Where my pattern space? analysis. So this visual spatial analysis synthesis skills is a foundational ability uh, that actually allows you to appraise or gauge so it's essential for parallel parking. It's also essential for distance traveling. It's also essential for furniture rearrangement. It's also Painting, essential hanging. for backpack management, you know, space, spatial compacting, uh, the desk, you know, like keeping your desk clutter-free. All that requires incredible visual spatial analysis synthesis skills. And, and they are because they are responsibility of the right hemisphere prefrontal cortex. For sure. Yes. And all of those are absolutely critical must have in order to work in early intervention because we're traveling to patients' homes. We're supposed to use, you know, least restrictive environment, home-based services only. And yes. Oh, I have so many follow-up questions, Suchetta, about like the role of fatigue and burnout in this. And then, and what about, you were talking about changing climate. I mean, the pandemic and that huge switch in the pandemic and was there a rise in executive function disorders or do we see more people rising to the challenge of that switch well i can say if um, i can interject quickly so there's a lot of you know research we, we are beginning to understand the impact of failure to yield so to speak <laughs> so so it's uh, when i was talking about this climate changing environment and challenging times is so the challenging one of the most important component of executive function is called temporal discounting. That means your ability to gauge your own behaviors through passage of time. How will I be next year? You know, how will I be in six months? Would I actually continue to save money, for example? And what they have research finds that stress is one of the biggest barrier in our ability to continue to adapt and change and thrive uh, during challenging times because we in- become heavy temporal discounters. <laughs> so we kind of underestimate uh, the impact of our failed connections to the current moment. We're like, nah, oh, that me of tomorrow, she will be fine. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's a lie. <laughs> and we take greater risks and we blow off. There's a lot of research that talks about, you know, greater procrastination. Uh, it talks about a less saving for tomorrow. It talks about overeating. It talks about um, actually engaging in, in uh, illegal or unsavory behaviors because really not having any relationship with the future self. So you're absolutely right. I think the challenging environments create an incredible hyper-awareness of the current moment without any connection to self in the continuation of time. And then we become these people who are here now. Oh my God, I'm panicking. I need to do this. And then you hyper become hyper-vigilant. You become extremely stressed out. And then you're not doing the basic things that will help you. And I'll, I'll give you a quick analogy. When I moved to Boston, and it was my fur nor'easter. I don't know those who live in Northeast know what a nor'easter is, but anybody who doesn't kind of doesn't have that experience. So nor'easter, one of, and I was a new driver, even though I was 25. So the instructions were, Sucheta, if you're ever stuck in a snowstorm, let go the brake, right? 
great in theory. And then I got stuck in a nor'easter. And then I took the exit because I couldn't even see a single thing, like two inches from the, you know, my windshield. So I decided to take the exit and my car, car did 180 degree. And I decided to break exactly opposite of what I was told. So knowledge was great. But when it came to ap- application, as the environment became challenging and changing, I was not able to adapt. And this is not because I'm a foolish person. This is not because I lack the intellect or it doesn't even mean I lack the bandwidth to do it. I had no experience. So it's really important that in therapeutic environment, one of the ways to inoculate or or help build executive function is lots and lots of experiences, repeated experiences, but not repetitious experience. It's a really good distinction to have. So it cannot be the same thing you do 100 times. You have to do similar things 100 times. Oh. Oh, wait. Okay. I'm thinking about the children that I work with with AAC devices when we're working on language acquisition for like a new core vocab word that has multiple meanings, like on. You turn the light on versus you could turn the TV on versus you could turn your... um, I have one little guy who has an iPad specific for music videos. We could turn that on. And I've been trying to explain to the mom that... You have to utilize that same word in in different ways so that we grasp the concept of this word has multiple meanings and you just hit it on the head. Yes, yes. yes. And, yes. and so when you work on receptive, again, uh, one of the ways to judge and evaluate impact of executive function proficiency, it is in doing. So understanding mm-hmm. or comprehension is mm-hmm. invisible. So you can't tell executive function proficiency. So it has to be the way you emote, the way you communicate, or the way you act. So just so as we think about this uh, homophones, or we are ta- talking about uh, words with multiple meanings, what we want is adaptability of usage, right? So so it's very hard because we are teaching it, and we the most when will we certify the kid has grasped the concept of on is when the child actually uses it himself. He did it. He did it today to turn on request. Hey, Jude, that's his favorite. He loves the Beatles. He is a four-year-old that has an affinity for excellent music. And we said, it's really cute. And he, and he was able to say, I want. And then he would gesture towards whatever it was that he wanted. And he, would, and he can say, I want. And we were like, all right, let's expand. Expansion with his AAC device. And he did, I want on and then we were able to model please with visual verbal and like tactile cues and he said please and then and then and then he smiled and he signed for more and i was like oh my god that's like a five word utterance yes (laughs) yes yes so those are exactly the the victories that when we are facilitating because we it's so interesting i mean i am just so fascinated with with our field and the way we teach new skills we we do like scaffolding, we do this uh, modeling, we do coaching. And, and when, as the skills emerge, if we can add metacognition to it, uh, do I know that I have learned a new skill would be another, like a, having a little sidebar. And I like to give this example, you know, when during Shakespeare's time, I think what, I don't know, 16th century, there used to be actors who would come on the stage and act. And then they would have a one actor who would step forward and explain what just happened 
and and in case those who didn't catch up okay and I, i i love that idea because your prefrontal cortex is the one that steps forward and says allow me to explain <laughs> that's your recognition right there <laughs> i feel like there's followed by like a dramatic bell with like here's exactly. your sign <laughs> oh my drop <laughs> bow bow oh yes God. yes i just uh, that's uh, i hear i hear my grandma in the back my grandma raised me and she would always say baby girl don't drive faster than your guardian angel can fly <laughs> and I feel like that's I my prefrontal that. cortex going oh michelle i don't know let's let's okay wait so then talk to me what exactly does my very exhausted prefrontal cortex do and how does that play into helping executive function skills develop in children oh lord so yes our prefrontal <laughs> cortex <laughs> So you know like uh, uh, just to describe the gross architecture of human prefrontal cortex which is of course it's the the last to emerge in evolution and it's first to get impaired so one important thing and when we talk about impairment or why all disabilities and disorders will have executive function component or impact is because so let's think about human prefrontal cortex right what's the architecture of that so you have motor strip uh, right next to your prefrontal cortex and so most of the uh, motor neurons fly through that and then the direction to take action or to react to communicate all that goes through prefrontal cortex so any injury in parts of the brain ultimately the the wiring of that information loops through prefrontal cortex so it's going to affect the functioning uh, that is responsible uh, that that's governed by the prefrontal cortex so what do you what do we have so think about a, a few centers in the brain right so you have lateral surface which is split into ventral lateral region and then dorsal lateral region and then the medial surface uh, which is like if you can take your hands put your hands together fold them in the middle and then what you get and open the fists so when you see the fist and the fingers that are folded of the fist that's the medial so you have right med- right medial prefrontal cortex and left medial prefrontal cortex but these these areas have very specific responsibility for example the right prefrontal cortex allows you to reflect on your own and others mental states which is what we call theory of mind So as you can see impairment here can cause this inability to take a perspective on the other and and you know there are many ways to understand that but we have affective theory of mind we have cognitive theory of mind we have interpersonal theory of mind and intrapersonal theory of mind so there as we understand so that's one ability that governs social communication regulation so when we talk about teaching children or adults this ability to monitor how we behave in society very much prefrontal cortex is involved the second area you can think about is performing two or more tasks together your ventral lateral prefrontal cortex is involved for it and then the third just a quick shout out to episodic memory retrieval which is your dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex so let's talk about this frontal cortex development uh, this is a slowly developing network and more uh, rather than when we think about growth we think about like sprouting right sprouting and sprouting and growing taller but like what marks the prefrontal cortex 
proficiency is networking. That means how effectively areas in the brain talk to the prefrontal cortex. And so a very important stage of development must happen, which is called pruning. That means you actually start chopping. So in order for the growth to happen or strengthen, we need to let go the connections that are weak or loose. And and so many disorders, the, the, the pruning doesn't happen. That could be one way of describing a prefrontal cortex network. The second way to think about this is the prefrontal cortex is interconnectivity is missing. So there, there's no cohesion. So one of the strongest ways executive function um, are demonstrated is there is that ability to see the big picture, right? So you're standing on top of the mountain and you can look at the prairie and you are able to take an inventory of the whole large terrain. So, so uh, Lynn Meltzer, for example, talks about this getting in, in the weeds, which is you're standing at the bottom of a hill and you look up and all you see is a canopy of trees. You may see the leaves, but you can't see anything. Then you go stand on top of the mountaintop and all you see is the top of the uh, canopy, right? So this ability to see the top of the mountain and from the mountain to see the tiny leaves is called convergent and divergent thinking process, which leads to mental flexibility. So those brains that have this art and science of able to go into the minor minutiae and come up to see the big picture tend to have incredibly well-balanced, future-forward thinking ability. Well, so a nine-year-old is far more proficient than a six-year-old. And a oh, six God, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, have you seen that in a live? And a 16-year-old is far more proficient than a nine-year-old. But the caveat is if you have two 16-year-olds and two nine-year-olds, I like to describe executive dysfunction uh, in, from a framework of two important components. One, if there's a need and the child is under-functioning in the, in the area of a need and demand, then that's a dysfunction. And second, if the peers are performing and the child is not, then it's a dysfunction. Because the most important ways to understand executive function is social regulation. So if a child that is not regulating skills and abilities that his peers are able to becomes dysfunctional in the context of observable competence. Yes. And all I can think is, I feel like the nine-year-olds might outpace the 16-year-olds when hormone comes into play. But just just a thought as a boy mom. <laughs> so, like... No, no, actually, it it's feels like it. But one of the things that, yes, there's, I call it OTM, which is one track mind. Yes, you will see a teenager getting into <laughs> OTM. <laughs> one lane highway. That's not a highway, my dear friend. No, <laughs> that's, no, what, no. that's what they're traveling on. But what also does is by a 16-year-old's life experiences are enriched. And so one thing that I will say, if you think about a role of play in developing executive function, is if you are dealing with children who are very young, they you will see them engaging in huge imaginative play. So they will take a cup and make it upside down. And now that they will call a volcano that's erupting because they have a, a another little cup of water underneath. And they say, ooh, the, the volcano is going to erupt. And they'll topple the two and pretend to have lava coming out. 
that is very concrete, but using imagination to imagine things that don't exist. And when you go to school, one of the a lot of creativity research talks about, which is very important when we talk about executive function, is that schooling takes out the creativity because what it does is it says all the playing that you're doing needs to be stopped because it's interfering with this organized learning. But what it does is if you have reading, that can be a great source of imaginative, this ability to do time travel and ability to do this traveling in your imagination to imagine experiences that you haven't had personally. And this is why one of the biggest challenges that we need to really think about training executive function and poverty is the the void of high exposure to experiences that are not common. So I like to give this example. So we went to, uh, I took, when my son was 13 and I was invited to uh, speak in Zurich. So I had gone there and then we decided to uh, make a round trip, come back from the Salzburg area of of, uh, France. And so we rented bikes and we each had a bike lock. And then he, um, uh, we said, okay, oh, this sounds like a wonderful spot, you know, great uh, city, like a town center. We'll park our bikes and then we will, we will go and, you know, come back after two hours. So I park my bike and he parks his bike. And then I noticed the pole to which he had parked his bike was barely six feet tall. Okay. So now you have to imagine a bike attached to a pole that doesn't anchor into anything or it's not. Mine was like 16 feet tall, which was like a lamp, lamppost, and his was not. And I noticed it. He didn't. And then I took out my camera. Oh, my God, I traumatized my child. But anyways, I took out my camera and I had a quick session there. And I said, "Uh, what do you think? How is the spot? Did we choose a good spot? He says, oh, yeah, great. I says, "Um, tell me a little bit about our bikes when we come back. And he says, what do you mean? I said, no, just look around. Tell me. He says, oh, he says, let me check the lock. Lock is solid. Your lock is solid. I have the keys. You have the keys. I think we are safe. And then he looked around and he says, I see lots of bikes everywhere. And I said, I am concerned that our bikes are not secure. And he's like, so I refuse to tell him why. Okay. Because this is another very important uh, component of training executive function is to not give answers. And so I have this video that goes on and on for 10 minutes. He could not figure out why. So I, I narrowed it down by giving him cues and that, hmm, I said, I'm, my dear child, I'm a little bit worried about your bike. I think my bike is okay. So he figured out that it was something to do with the pole. And But he, from his context as, as a 12-year-old, had not experienced people stealing bikes. So he lacked the context of people stealing bikes by hook or crook. Now, I grew up in India and rode bikes everywhere and had locks and had hacks to break the locks and hacked hacks to double lock without double locks. And so I had such a rich context as an adult and as a person who had ridden a lot of bikes. He was not a bike rider other than riding on our neighborhood, but not locking it. So so what I'm trying to say that sometimes lack of experiences is one of the reasons why children look like they have executive dysfunction. So we should be really, really careful in labeling. We have to create opportunities when we think about treatment where all these opportunities are such that children know how to problem solve in, in circumstances they have never experienced before. And, and speech language pathologists can be very limited 
uh, or they may limit themselves uh, in therapeutic activities. So functional context is really, really critical. Okay, this takes me back to etiologies because I understand that the patient population that I serve tends to have more complex past medical histories, right? But this is this is the why. Folks, you, when you're writing your plan of care, when you're writing your treatment goals and your planning intervention, you have to have a firm foundation in what the disorder, disease, and comorbidities are of the little one that you're treating because it's going to change the trajectory of how you write and, and do therapy. So, for instance, you know, a couple of years ago, I worked with this little one who originally was sent for dysphagia um, referral because he had significant issues with aspiration on all consistencies, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it was, it was a baby. Oh, my God. Curly hair. Just, just sweet big old eyes. But I kept encouraging the mother, there is something more. This is not just oropharyngeal dysphagia. There is there's something that's driving this because she wasn't hitting her developmental milestones at like six months the way that she was supposed to be hitting her developmental milestones. Could not be comforted. Turns out we had to change, well, we, we had to seek second opinions, change pediatricians, get her to a neurologist. They did MRI CT scans and found out that she had lysencephaly. And that's going to um, folks, that's where we have a smooth brain. It's a very, very rare genetic condition, and and within within this, it you're going to have cognitive, severe cognitive component, and that completely changed the entire um, allied health teams, all of our planning cares, because it had to be updated according to pro- the current prognosis. Another um, another one is. A, had the pleasure of working with little ones that had a genesis of the corpus callosum as well as dysgenesis of the corpus callosum. A genesis is absence of the corpus callosum. Dysgenesis was a malformation. Um, we never did peg what that child's genetic condition was because he, he had a couple of, it, it was like a slight variation on like one of the chromosomes, but it wasn't like a complete deletion. It was like one of those like translocations, like one part attached to a different part, but it didn't have a syndrome associated with it. But his his corpus callosum just I don't know how to describe the shape when they did the testing. It was not a typical corpus callosum. And if your two halves of your brain are not talking to each other, how are you going to be able to develop these higher level skills? Or when we're just trying to cross midline with our bodies. And that is, y'all, you got to know this. This is, again, I circle back to this is why we speak with interprofessional practice partners and make referrals. So, and, and you were absolutely correct. For those of us that are called to serve the least of these, those that work in impoverished areas, high poverty, high crime rate, we have witnessed firsthand systemic racism within the field of medicine as well as sexism because throw an ism in there and you're going to find it and you have to make sure that when you're going in and you're doing your evaluations if you identify a disorder or a disease that label will get attached to that child for perpetuity and can absolutely impact the trajectory of that child's life and lack of exposure 
is not a lack of skill. So this is why we do dynamic assessments and you don't rely on just one assessment. Sorry, I feel really strongly about that. I had to put that in there. Yeah, and and I think, as you mentioned, a clinician's biases regarding capability. You know, we sometimes, uh, those who are in a position to help, as I was mentioning earlier, we have certain notion of what the help should look like. And sometimes, you know, the cultural context and the context of poverty's impact on the brain, we have this narrative, which is we must pull ourselves by the bootstraps. And this is a very, very entrenched in American psyche. So poverty is viewed as unknowingly, of course, that somebody who's failing to try harder. And there is a inherent blame in, in parents not being cultured enough or care uh, for personal agency in their children. And and so this kind of pre-assumptions can be deeply hurtful to the child's future with, with the clinician because she might assume that there's a lack of you know sophistication or lack of care or lack of interest in the child's welfare. Well, if the mom has three jobs, uh, you know, I was talking to a colleague of mine and she had a mom who would walk one hour Michelle walk one hour to get to the clinic to bring her her child, and and it wasn't until their fifth visit that that my friend found out, and she said, "What? How are you going back?" She says, "Well, we'll be walking back," and so she started dropping her, or, or rather, it was ten minutes away. But it would take them one hour with her child. With she, then she would have to bring another child with her. So so sometimes I think we just don't understand the complexities and invisible social barriers and and uh, dysfunction to us may tempt us to become saviors and we should be very careful about that because i think i i like to ask in what ways can i be help to you and and so when we talk about executive function goals designed by self for self is the hallmark of executive function proficiency and it's very very counter to how we conduct our therapy right we tell you what the goals are going to be we are going to yes semi going to involve you in goal formation but pretty much i'm going to dictate so it's really important to uh, to really let go that control and and join in a partnership and also have a metacognitive tail end of every therapy session tell me what you learned tell me why i'm going to why I'm doing what I'm doing and tell me how does this help and change your life so if we don't have those components there sometimes the well-meaning therapy will not have transfer and generalization okay metacognition explain this concept because I've heard this word and honest to god I don't know what it means so I'm sitting over here nodding like yeah Suchana, I'm totally with you and then in my head I'm like I have no freaking clue <laughs> <laughs> so metacognition, yes, 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 yes. And this is probably one of the reasons I have specialized in executive function is the concept of metacognition. <laughs> so so metacognition is, of course, this capacity and ability to monitor your own thinking. So in simplest way is how you think about your thinking. So I'm thinking... Not well. I have negative self-talk. Okay, continue. <laughs> yes, we'll come to that. That's a little bit different. So there's affective metacognitive abilities and, and uh, cognitive, which is, again, this always is very typical. But learning to become an accurate self-observer uh, helps us stay out of our blind alleys and make good decisions. 
right? This is one of the researchers who talks about these blind alleys. And so this capacity to reflect on what we know and what we don't know and what we don't know we don't know. (laughs) Yes, I love talking about, I don't know the answer to this, but let me help find the answer to that. I love that lifelong learning. Yes. Okay, so so think about, so there's a, Stephen Fleming is, uh, is one of the new cognitive neuroscientists and he's done a lot of work in this area. And he, I hope I'm quoting his definition correctly, but metacognition is an internal tribunal <laughs> that rules on the soundness of our mental representation. <laughs> so it's a tribunal that gets together and says, come on, Sucheta, you're wrong, or that's right, or, or the way I think is this. So the metacognition typically is an afterthought. So you, you uh, let's say you are a child and you hit somebody or you grab somebody's crayon, right? And then what we do, we come in and say, John, say sorry to Mary, right? And so then John <laughs> is made to say sorry. And John, out of fear of his mother, <laughs> but there's no metacognition. Metacognition is really saying, huh? I wanted a crayon. How did I go about it? Oh, I grabbed it. Oh, Mary didn't let go. I slapped her. Ah, I see. That was not proper. (laughs) So this, this ability to evaluate the sequence of behaviors and thought process behind it and emotions behind it, and then have some sort of tribunal that, like it says, evaluative judgment without being self-critical. So it's not like saying you're such a bad person, John, but it's saying that was not right is that metacognitive ability. Does that make sense? So executive function is, in in essence, in order to master or propel your executive function competence, it requires a deep emotional connection to errors. Now, that's a huge problem. Because people are not happy about looking back at, at themselves. The last thing about, I want to say about that metacognitive process is the, the mistakes are extremely critical to metacognitive uh, development. So this ability to reflect, so it's a self-reflection process, and that's how we identify with our own limitations, and only then we become strategic thinkers. So the two vital, if you ask me what are three vital ways to teach and uh, help children master executive function, I would say teach them the concept of future self, help them become self-aware. And third is teach them how to devise strategies, not use strategies you give them, but devise strategies. So the ultimate, my, my therapeutic process is always about I'm going to teach you how to figure out your strategies. I'm not going to tell you what the strategies are. So let me give you an example, okay? So I uh, am, um, I lock myself out of my house, right? Well, hopefully that one incident should be so traumatic that you should never have to uh, um, be locked out of the house again. So you come up with a solution that has much stronger longevity to it. But if you are, have been locked out of your house seven times, then there's a serious problem. <laughs> there's a some metacognitive disconnect. <laughs> so first I, time is okay, but if it repeats, somewhere there's a breakdown in self-awareness and there's a breakdown in strategic thinking. 
our family likes to tell the story of me growing up. Um, we would run out of dishwasher detergent. So I kept trying to figure out what's the right ratio of um, regular laundry or regular soap, like the Dawn that's concentrated. Uh, long story short, I flooded the dishwasher in the kitchen with copious bubbles coming over and all over the kitchen. I did it three times. And my dad was like, I just don't understand how you keep doing it. And I'm like, well, I just have yet to find the right ratio of how much of this I need to use. And dad's like, I don't think it works that way, honey. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> after the third, he was like, you're going to have to buy the family a new dishwasher. Guess what? I quit doing it. But I got to be honest, part of me still wonders, but how much Dawn can I put in the dishwasher to clean the dishes such that it doesn't froth over into the sink? <laughs> <laughs> are you not reading the instructions on the dawn uh you know the well it says don't use in the dishwasher but like but our why i need to know the why and i don't know my dad said my learning style is i was the kid that learned by pissing on the electric fence that's not kind <laughs> but he's not wrong <laughs> oh can i just tell you something really critical and that's very goes hand in hand with adhd um Does so really? <laughs> yes and and i mean there can this can be a gift but it can be a curse and i'll tell you how so if you actually need to piss on the fence as your dad says <laughs> which translates in a kosher language that you actually need the experience to to see the outcome and you which you haven't imagined so one of the human cognition benefits of human cognition is our capacity to reflect or like simulate, which is prefrontal cortex does this, by the way, simulate outcomes without actually having to experience them. And there's something called, secondly, it is called vicarious learning. That means I can learn by watching my husband, my sister, my dad load the dishwasher and learn from their experiences. <laughs> so now everybody but you have learned to not put Dawn, but you haven't. <laughs> I'm making this up. But what happens is, is there, there, there could be some resistance in you. And this is quite often I see with ADHD folks I work with because they, they really battle with autonomy, freedom to make my choices and they compromise uh, efficacy not you but what what i mean by efficacy is the world is designed in such a way that we can benefit by not encountering a mistake but just observe other people make the mistake and don't repeat it and that way we actually save uh, the system and we become very very effective in um, taking decisions and managing our time and ma managing our goals without really compromising uh, our own values because we have said, ah, never shall I again. You know, I like the Scarlett O'Hara. <laughs> I will never go hungry again. You know, that declaration yeah. is what executive yes. function declaration needs to be. <laughs> that's, that's, well, you know, I, I keep going back to but the science, but what does the science say about the dish soap? And yes, and, and I have to say, but that's very, very incredibly true. On this side of it, there are some things that I can quickly pick up on watching somebody else and go, oof, that is not going to end well for them and recognize and not do. But then there are other things like 
you know, parallel parking and visual spatial, like, oh, but I got this. I have enough backup cameras. I literally told my eight-year-old, I was like, don't worry, mommy has enough backup cameras in the new car that, like, this seems like a spaceship. I can figure this out. And you know what? It was not right. <laughs> so, okay, so I'm going to do a thera- yes. therapy with you in this moment, okay? Yes, perfect. So, so, all right, so let's take this dishwasher situation. So I'm going to ask you as my client, how important is it for you to know how much Dawn soap to put in it? It depends on what time of the no, day. It's two of- no, now. Like, I mean, I'm just going to ask you to generalize. Oh, I'm not going to like give you any wiggle room. I'm going to bo- no. be the boss brain with you. Okay. Boss brain? It's not yes. important. Okay. It's, so I, so what I I'm know it's not important, but it no, is. No, 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 no. I don't mean <laughs> it's not important. How important it is to you? Because really, like I had this this client, it was really important to him to actually uh, figure out a shortcut so that he he spent. Okay, I kid you not. He was eleven, not eleven. Uh, he was sixteen. He spent literally the kid who never did his homework spent five hours creating a contraption in his room that. Anytime his parents would open the door without knocking, it would squirt water on them. Brilliant engineering. <laughs> Brilliant engineering, okay? Brilliant. So what it showed me that he had the skills and the bandwidth to design something, but he it was invested in an area that was not, it was self-sabotaging, right? So your query can be very uh, wonderful. And inquisitiveness is what has gotten you far along in your own career. But you have to really think about sometimes if you're getting stuck, can you unglue yourself from that? Because this could be your being stuck. And I'm not calling you stuck. I'm just saying that it's it's a deep desire, but I think it might be good to now maybe experiment with it five times. And after that, you say, whatever my conclusion is, that's going to be my conclusion. Because I think it can really take away your mental resources. Yes, this this is one of the random thoughts that runs through my head when I wake up between two o'clock and three o'clock in the morning. So I'm serious, like that that pops up at, mm, at least oy once vey, a month. As I yes, oy vey, it's there. There's other ones there, but like, so folks, if you're ever wondering what really grinds my gears, it's how much Dawn can I safely use in the dishwasher? And if you actually know the answer to that, then please do not email me her. At, Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh my please god! Please don't spare her, please. <laughs> I love you so much. This is great. Okay, all right. So, Chana, we've we've run over the life, but folks, please, for other non dishwasher related analogies, I would highly recommend prefront prefrontal. I mean, I can't say it because it's too many R's full and prefrontal exposing. Yeah, the mysteries of executive function. Yes, because, but you are, bar none, a subject matter expert in what it is that you do and your passion shines through. And having these skills, if you too, like myself, have a touch of ADD and ADHD, a little bit of anxiety that even things out, then you wonder, what can I do to better serve my patients? How can I grow my own skill set? And part of that is having those crucial conversations, but then learning where to go next. So, um, Suchetta, how can, how can they reach you? How can they learn from you? Fill us in on the details, please. Well, I am so happy to connect with you all. And thank you, Michelle, for your amazing platform and such a fabulous conversation. So if you want to reach me, you can look me up at 
exqinfinitenowhow.com. That is my educational 100% digital software, EXQ, that teaches executive function, evaluates and assesses executive function in seven areas of cognition and also provides a year-long curriculum. Uh, it's also available for parents to purchase. And second is you can always email me at sucheta, S-U-C-H-E-T-A, at cerebralmatters.com or sucheta, S-U-C-H-E-T-A, at exqinfinitenowhow.com. Oh, and yes, do subscribe to my podcast. Since uh, Michelle and I are putting in so much time and effort and enjoy this process of talking to amazing, amazing people. Uh, so yeah, that will be Full Prefrontal Podcast and fullprefrontal.com. Yes, 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 yes. Um, everybody, be sure to check us out at First Bite Podcast on Instagram, on Facebook. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple iTunes. Also, don't forget Chasing the Swallow is available on Amazon and recently approved for 13 and a half Asha Continuing Education Hours through speechtherapypb.com. And uh, you can check that on uh, social media on Instagram as well. You know, I love it when you send me messages of joy and hope. And uh, we are in this together to make the world better for those that we serve and for our colleagues. So we appreciate you. Um, Suchetta, you are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, everybody, go check her out. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And amen to everything you said. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.